If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with John Wertheim. You know him from CBS 60 Minutes, Sports Illustrated, and, of course, Tennis Channel. This is kind of a, a good time to break off from the way I normally cover the sport. Let's face it, I always keep it very focused on the tennis itself. What's happening between the lines Technical, tactical, nuts and bolts, details. Uh, try to get into as much depth as possible when it comes to, again, the matches. But with uh, Wimbledon kind of in the rear view, a little bit of a lull in the calendar, albeit some stuff to go over, which I will in the open. Uh, this is a great time for the John Wertheim podcast, which I try to do every year. I feel like he covers a lot of these worldly issues as they relate to tennis. Uh, as well, if not better, than everybody else. And that's why I bring him on for this show, something that I, I always really, really enjoy. And I will give one specific tease on the Saudi Arabia matter with public investment fund money potentially being introduced to tennis and injected into tennis very, very soon. John did a story for 60 Minutes where he actually traveled to Saudi Arabia and had a conversation face-to-face -face with the Minister of Sport for Saudi Arabia. So he has great perspective on that issue in particular, but we get into other stuff like on-court coaching, like two-week masters, PED, testing, suspensions, that has kind of popped up. And uh, th those are the main things. There were some things that I cut because we went so long. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about some of the stuff uh, that we did see this week. First, UTS, Ultimate Tennis Showdown. 
Patrick Muradoglu's new, unique, I would say, edgy, uh, kind of rule-breaking tennis league exhibition. Prize money is great. They got a good field of players. Uh, really the best field that I think they've ever had. Maybe maybe they did better in the pandemic where they were literally not even competing with tour, with the tour at all. Uh, but now they had a great field and they had a crowd in Los Angeles. It was the first ever UTS in front of a crowd, which is really essential to creating anything worthwhile. You need to do it in front of an audience. Uh, so they were finally able to do that. And I watched every second of it. I was, you know, paid to watch every second of it as uh, the as I was hosting it for Tennis Channel. But nonetheless, I watched every second of it, and I want to talk about that. I come at it from this standpoint, this perspective. To me, there's nothing worse, literally nothing, than exhibition tennis that just feels normal. Like, you take normal tennis, and you take away the stakes, you take away the stuff that matters— and you just play a normal tennis match, there's nothing worse than that. I do not watch. I am not interested. Like, the exhibitions that happen in December before the Australian—not December. Yeah, yeah, they happen in December. Before the Australian Open, right, when players are starting to kind of get back into it, and that's actually been a time of year where oftentimes they've gone to the Middle East, speaking of which, uh, to, to play exhibitions. I don't watch. I don't watch. I don't care. I have no time for that stuff. And I'm not saying that— it shouldn't happen or that they shouldn't do it, but I will not be watching because it's not interesting to me. This was not that. This was refreshing. This was interesting. I think the fans loved it. The biggest thing that I require of an exhibition in order for it to get my attention and capture my interest is to just find a sales pitch for me. Find a hook. Do something different. Do something interesting. Because if you're just going to play normal tennis and you're taking the stakes away, well, look, I'm sorry. I watch enough tennis all the time, all year round, 11-month season. I don't need more of it. So you have to bring something to the table that goes above and beyond what we see on a week-to-week -week basis. And UTS did this. So all in all, I think they deserve a lot of props for that just before I even get into any of the specifics. But now, kind of, let me just go down the list. Here is what was different. In no particular order. Music between points. Sometimes during the points. That completely changed the energy. I kind of liked it. The crowd was not told to be quiet during the points. The crowd was allowed to do whatever they want. You can stand up. You can sit down. You can walk in. You can walk out. You can yell. You can shout. There were no rules for the crowd. It was fine. It came off as very natural. There was not, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't like everything was quiet and silent and somebody in the crowd would yell watermelon and someone would shank a forehand and be distracted. It never happened like that because if you allow the crowd to do whatever they want, and especially if there's a lot of noise happening, no one voice is going to stand up stand out among the rest and distract the players on court. So that came off as very natural, very seamless. And I don't, I didn't get the impression that the players were bothered by it at all. And at times it was kind of fun when 
during a very exciting point or sometimes a very very crucial point, you actually had the Nat sound of the crowd reacting to shot by shot by shot. It actually created some pretty exciting moments in, in terms of the, the auditory experience of watching the tennis. There is no code of conduct, no point penalties for ball abuse, verbal abuse, racket abuse. All of that was out the window. You know, that... That isn't really a huge selling point for me. I'll say Benoit Paire took advantage of that. It it did, I guess, create some moments, but not a lot. Not a lot. But I did love the players actually talking to each other. Uh, there was one moment that came across to me as really, really good. There was a great rally, but at the end of it, Monfils made like a naked backhand unforced error. Complete mistake. That's how the rally ended. And Shelton over-celebrated. Like he threw his arms up. He was running. He was raising the roof. He completely over-celebrated. And Gail saw that. And Gail at the time, you know, gave it kind of like, what what the, what the heck is he doing celebrating like that after that shot? So Gail started giving it back. He started dancing. He started taunting. He started showboating. And then Shelton ended up quick-serving him, like, before he was ready, while Monfils was kind of giving it back, as I was just describing. And then Monfils started doing the crybaby at him. It felt in that moment like there was genuine animosity between Ben and Gale. And look, of course, it's going to be all good at the end of the match. But in that moment, I think that they genuinely believed that they were kind of ticking each other off. And they started trash-talking each other at the changeover as well. Like, that kind of thing was really, really cool and really, really fun. 15-second uh, shot clock. That's all they had between points. You know, it's still the same thing. The chair umpire had a little bit of wiggle room when it came to when the clock started, when they called the score. Uh, but players certainly managed to do it for 45 minutes. Don't get me wrong. It was hard. And the changeovers were three minutes. So that was key so that the players at the end of each quarter, four eight-minute quarters, they could really kind of get their wind back. Uh, so it was definitely a physical push. But I would say the 15 seconds was was great. It worked. It, it definitely kept the play going. Now, there was also one serve. I would say 15-second shot clock combined with one serve, that was a little much. It got probably a little bit too physical to the point where it was negatively affecting play. You know, the players just weren't able to really work the rallies as well as maybe they ordinarily would be able to because of that combination. And I think the one serve thing was the biggest disruptor. It really took away a pretty essential part of the sport. And it, it was tough on the big servers. It felt to me like the most radical aspect of all of this was the one serve part. Because it really did take away entire chapters of tennis strategy. And you look at a player like Fritz, a player like Bublik, a player like Shelton. By the way, all of them... All of those three players in particular did end up doing really, really well. Uh, but, you know, they couldn't really use one of the things that kind of makes them a great tennis player. Bublik was terrible. He went 0-2 uh, in his first two matches and just looked completely lost out there. Finally won a match when he just decided to hit the first serve. Like, forget the faults, just hit the first serve. That was the best strategy. In terms of the actual scoring format, four eight-minute quarters... You know, first to three quarters wins. If it's tied 2-2, it was kind of this sudden death duel. Last couple things. 
when it comes to interviewing the players and just, I guess, interaction and miking stuff up. I mean, there were interviews at every single changeover. I would say maybe there were a little bit too many. It got a little bit tiresome, especially after the fourth quarter. Uh, one, if I were talking to Patrick, one thing I would say he should adjust or he should change is that at the end of the fourth quarter, he should go right to the sudden death. There should not be another, you know, changeover interviews. I would say those got a little bit tiresome and, and maybe it was, maybe part of it was the line of questioning, you know, the, but in general, it was great. In general, I liked it. I just think maybe we got a little bit too much of it, but it was uh, very effective in getting out certain personalities. Wu Yi Bing, especially like that's a, that's a funny guy. That's a guy who is a, is a personality likes to play around, does have some wit to him. Definitely has a, a certain vibe. Uh, ben Shelton, I thought was the star when it came to personality in this three-day event. Nobody came off better than him. He was, you know, simultaneously competitive but also playful. And able to marry those two things, combining with uh, a real comfort as a, as a showman when it comes to just speaking. You know, being on the mic and trash talking and putting on a show and connecting with the crowd. Absolute superstar in that respect. Gail Monfils was also great, but that came as no surprise. We know that. Lastly, uh, coaching, mic'd up coaching. Some good stuff in there, but a lot of just clapping and yelling encouragement, which ends up being just kind of annoying. But, you know, here and there, there were, there were some good nuggets. I did like, in general, the idea that the coaches... And I get into this a little bit with John Wertheim. The coaches were made a part of the thing. Before the players walked onto the court, the coaches were introduced by name. What a concept that is. What a concept that is in a, in a sport where coaching is legal, that the name of the coach would actually be announced to the audience, to the viewers, so that we know who they are. You know, like in every other sport where we know who the coach is and they are actually made a part of the whole entire thing interaction. That was good. Overall high marks to UTS, something new, something refreshing. And I kind of think it has legs because I thought, you know, if they can, that's a good fan experience. I think they can generate a lot of money. I don't know if they can get, a great, you know, media deal out of that, uh, especially with, you know, the infrequency of it. But as a, as a local traveling show, I feel like it can do really, really well because it, it seemed like the fans loved it and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. If you're going to give me an exhibition, give it to me like that. Well done, UTS. Well done, Patrick Maritoglu. Let's go to the two tour events, the two ATP events last week. Uh, Manorino wins Newport. Here's a guy who plays Newport most years, Adrian Manorino. This was his ninth, had never made the quarterfinal. And I always just chalk that up to, like, the court doesn't bounce true enough. It's not consistent enough. So it kind of favors the really big servers. It, I mean, we did get Jensen Brooksby doing well a couple years ago. But, like, Cressy wins last year. That, to me, 
came as no surprise. You know, Bublik has done well. That to me comes as no surprise. I just never thought that you could really play from the baseline there and that be the easiest way to have success. But it kind of seems like they just improved the courts. It seems like the courts got better. And that kind of, you know, potentially opened up the opportunity for Manorino to do it. But look, Adrian's had a great grass court season. You know, you know, I made him Wimbledon dark horse. I said that if he was fresh, he had a chance at beating Daniil Medvedev. I said that in the preview. So I think so highly of what Manorino is doing on the grass. Unbelievable movement, consistency. Uh, the height of bounce is just a nightmare to play against. I mean, it is, it is literally literally borderline unfair how low his backhand is bouncing. It just gives his opponents absolutely nothing to work with. And uh, the precision, when it comes to depth, when it comes to angles, it, it's almost like you could put a one foot, you know, one and a half foot radius on the sidelines and the baseline, and Manorino is going to put every ball within that radius. Absolutely spectacular. And that combined with the movement and the spin rate is why we see Manorino as one of the biggest specialists on tour, if not the biggest. I use him as an example all the time of one of the few guys who still can be, you know, a top 30 player, I would say top 20 player on grass, and he's not even a top 100 player on clay. He's one of the few players who still maintains that kind of disparity. Uh, the career records on grass, Manorino, 69 wins, 46 losses, win percentage of 60%. On clay, he's 16 wins to 56 losses, win percentage of 22%. So congratulations to him for another title, third career title. Uh, all of his titles are after the age of 30. He's just better now. And I know I've said this before. He used to be one of my least favorite players to watch. I could not stand watching him. And now he's one of my favorites. So I just think he's become a lot more a lot more spontaneous, a lot more proactive in terms of trying to actually disrupt and create some offense from time to time where uh, I, I thought there was just a period in Manorino's career where he was... Uh, a really excellent world-class pusher, but also, again, kind of a pusher. And I, I just didn't like the way he was uh, kind of going about his tennis. Again, now I absolutely love it. I think he's a joy to watch. So that's great. Uh, let's talk about his his opponent in the final, Alex Mickelson, 18-year-old amateur, uh, committed to the University of Georgia. What stood out to me about him, very sound decision-making, very patient attack, Felt super present and had a great court awareness in terms of when to come in, when to when to play a trade, when to play a rally ball, when to change direction, when to inject pace. I really loved his shot selection. And he's 18. It's kind of rare. Usually, when an 18-year-old breaks out onto the scene, we're looking more at somebody like Holger Runa, or even Carlos Alcaraz, or Arthur Fees. The point I'm trying to make is you see guys who have all of these incredible raw abilities, but you're thinking, okay, they don't really know how to use it yet. Like Carlos Alcaraz's shot selection at 18 years old was pretty awful. It was pretty terrible. And then he had to kind of learn that. 
Same thing with like Arthur Feast right now, who's one of the best teenagers in the world. He's either 18 or 19. Unbelievable ability. Just doesn't really know how to kind of construct points yet. Alex Mickelson, kind of the reverse. Still got a lot of skills. Don't get me wrong. I loved his volleys. I loved his flat backhand. But it feels like his head is the part that's actually almost there already, which is pretty cool. Bostad, before we get to John Wertheim, um, Rublev, Rude, top two seeds make the final there. And I just have kind of a technical point to make to kind of paint a picture of how well Andre Rublev was playing. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know. Particularly, look, and every aspect was amazing. I mean, Rublev played probably the best match I've ever seen him play. It was absolutely stunning from start to finish. But I think the biggest thing that was kind of a, a game-breaker for Rublev was how well he was hitting his backhand. And I thought that in itself was was going to be the biggest annoyance for Kasparud and uh, the biggest boon for, for Rublev's performance. Because both of these guys, when they play each other, they're kind of avoiding the deuce side cross court. It's just not how they are going to get what they want. You know, by going forehand to forehand, they're both trying to draw the weak ball off of the backhand. It's just how they construct their baseline rallies, particularly on clay. And for Rude, for Rude on clay, a lot of it is breaking down the backhand with height. Let's get the ball high and heavy to a righty backhand. And now... We're going to draw the weaker ball off of that backhand and attack with the forehand. So it's really about getting it to the ad side and then finding forehands off of the ad side cross court. Off of that cross court rally, who's going to get forehands? That's what to look for when these two match up because, you know, they're very similar in that respect. They're both trying to accomplish the same thing. And if you're going to, if you're going to look at it from that standpoint, quality backhands rule. Quality backhands are at an unbelievable premium. And more often than not, whoever comes up with more quality backhands or higher quality backhands in this case is going to have an upper hand in this head-to-head. -head. We can look at it both directions. First, backhand down the line effectiveness. Take advantage of the cheat. Again, both players are going 
to the opponent's backhand and looking for the forehand. And they are looking for the forehand positionally, not only, you know, not just, not just they're looking for it. They are actively hunting it and finding it. And part of that is the footwork and the cheating to the left to try to create the runaround. And if you're hitting great backhands down the line consistently, which Andre Rublev was, you are taking advantage. You are countering the cheat. The cheat left. Because that backhand down the line goes into the open court, which if you are Kasparud and you are leaning left, you're going the wrong way. Just pause. Pause at the split step. Watch Rublev's backhand down the line winners and pause the video at the split step. You're going to see Kasparud more often than not off, off, off the center line of the court and jumping to his left more often than not. But the backhand cross court is also a huge deal, maybe an even bigger deal than the backhand down the line. First of all, if you hit a quality backhand cross court, you eliminate the forehand. You eliminate the redirect chance off the backhand as well. If you're if you hit the ball deep enough, if you hit the ball big enough, and you have Kasparud or Andre Rublev uh, trying to you know hitting a backhand out of the ad side corner off of a ball that has a lot of quality on it, you can't change down the line off that ball. It's too difficult. You can try, and now you're looking at a low percentage attempt. So you have to go back cross. And you didn't get a forehand. And if your backhand cross court is good enough, obviously, to draw that weak backhand that everybody's looking for, now you get to cheat. You get your runaround forehand. Or you get to step in for your backhand down the line. So you can redirect. That's how you have to look at this. It's a cross court exchange. And the winner of that cross court exchange is getting rewarded um, with that forehand or with that redirect opportunity with the backhand down the line. So, you know, out of that ad side pattern, everything was happening for Rublev because he was hitting awesome backhands down the line, awesome backhands cross court. And again, there's nothing worse in this head-to-head than hitting a bad backhand cross court. That's what you want to avoid. And that's what Rude sometimes does, sometimes with his slice, sometimes with his drive. Um, and sometimes feeling the pressure and pulling the ball wide with his backhand cross court because of uh, because of the threat that Rublev was creating with his runaround forehand and with his backhand down the line. There was more to the Rublev performance other than his backhand. Great forehand defense, great serving, more variety than I've usually seen. A couple of serving volleys, a couple of drop shots. Some of them he like mysteriously apologized. He was like, sorry, man, I know I don't normally hit drop shots. Just want to just wanna apologize for my drop shots. But it was overall just an incredible performance from Rublev. And uh, that is why it was, you know, 7-6, 6-love, and didn't even really feel like Kasparud played badly. Here's John Wertheim. We're joined once again by John Wertheim of Tennis Channel, Sports Illustrated, and CBS 60 Minutes. Uh, John, I feel like we've been doing this every year, and it's always one of my favorite shows of the year. So I appreciate wow. you coming back on a Monday Match Analysis. That's very kind of you. Do I ask what that is behind you on the shelf, or should we save that for later? That looks suspiciously like the 
2024 Olympic mascot, but I don't think that's what it is. Are, are we, are you, give me a color and then I'll red. try to help you red, out. Squ- red squishy toy. That would be Otto the Orange. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, Syracuse. All right. You, you're, you'll get a good laugh when you see the, uh, I can't remember the name of it, the, the mascot for Paris 2024, but okay. uh, looks derivative. Looks like I'll, adjacent to Otto. Well, Otto was first, so we know who yeah, exactly. copied who. Exactly. So um, I want to start with something that nobody's talking about. It, it's not, it has not been in the tennis world. It's kind, it was at one point, uh, but it's, it's coaching. Um, at the start of the year, at the start of the year, it was supposed to be that the trial at the, towards the latter half of 2022 was going to come to an end and then they were going to decide how to move forward. But interestingly, there was never really an announcement or a, a press release like, yeah. okay, we're going to continue the on-court coaching. This is how we're going to move forward. To me, John, and the reason why I wanted to start with it, this is a seismic change in the sport, and it's not really being treated like one. There's, uh, there's, there's, a, broader, there's a broader moral to the story. I agree with you uh, 100%. Um, a lot of people, self-included, had strong opinions about this. And it's sort of, you know, I mean, I think, I think tennis – is susceptible to this, but I think we all are that we, we clamor and we have great strong opinions and then change comes. We don't think twice about it. And everybody wants to know how do we end these best of five set matches? Do you play? You've got to have a two game margin. Should we just play a tiebreaker? And finally, all four majors got together. They did this uniformly. You, you play this, this 10 point super tiebreak and we kind of got on with our lives and all of this, uh, all of these opinions stopped. Same you know, I, I think the coaching is a little different um, because the objections I thought were were broader. But yeah, I mean, in, in theory, uh, coaching is here, and for all the discussion and debate that this has aroused for years, um, it's kind of not a big deal. And I think people would—I uh, mean, you're you're right. It sort of was was stuck under. I mean, it sort of no, nobody said, "Hey, everybody, here's what we're doing. Come and watch." I mean, it was sort of was the uh, it was a soft push, but I don't think it's materially altered things. I don't think a lot of players have strong opinions about it. You don't hear about this as something that's had great material impact on matches. And we've all just kind of shrugged, honestly. (laughs) I'm still anti, and I won't go through all all the arguments, but I still think it was actually better how it was before. I understand that it wasn't perfect before, but uh, I feel like it it, it was still a, a noble rule to have and i you know there were yes there were some inconsistencies there but i think that's okay but i i do feel like the ship has has sailed and it just feels like this is the direction that it went and uh, almost the toothpaste is out of the tube there there will never go back uh but but the implementation of me is is fascinating first of all do you agree with that that it's kind of over like this is how it's going to be yeah, I mean, I think if, if there were a sense that this was really a foundational change to the sport, uh, but I, you know, I think a lot of it's almost here, we'll take this in a weird direction, but it's, it's sure. almost like the, uh, the, the first round play from the Grand Prix event in Hungary, where I think a lot of people took their lead from the players. And if players were upset about this or players thought this was advantaging them, disadvantaging them, having an impact on the outcome of matches, I think a lot of people would get more upset but it's sort of like yeah i don't know if the players don't think it's a big deal 
maybe we shouldn't either. And yeah, I mean, I, I do think the ship has sailed, but I think it's, if we want to continue the analogy, it is a, uh, you know, this is, this is a, uh, this is a sunfish. This is a dinghy and not, um, you know, Paul Allen's yacht. I mean, I, it's kind of not a big deal. And you did have a sense a lot of this coaching was kind of going on anyway. I'm like you, I'd prefer if players solve their own problems. I think it's more equitable. I think for financial, I mean, for a hundred reasons we could defend her. Sure. Um, but I just don't think if, if the players aren't making a big deal of it, I think we all kind of take our cue from them to some extent. I think perhaps every player thinks that their coach knows what they are talking about and therefore it's, you know, everybody thinks it's going to help them for the most part. I, I have heard a lot of former players who had entire careers trying to figure things out on the court. Uh, I feel like they've been a little bit more vocal about not liking it. Um, like, like some of our colleagues at Tennis Channel, I, I think, have been against it. Uh, sure. But if we're just going to assume that that's the way, I would just like some things to advantage the fans. Because uh, you're right, the players have not the players have not been outraged by it. A lot of the players have, I, I think, taken on to it. Uh, but how about we think about this in a way where, okay, the fans are going to get some benefit from it. And I think the way to do that is to make the coaches part of this spectacle, part of this product. But instead, half the time, sometimes we don't even know who they are uh, because there's not right. any sort of kind of official, which would never happen in other sports. Uh, they do not need to go speak to the press after the matches like the player does, uh, which is also exists in other sports. So it seems like they've become a part of it, but but it's not like we're getting access to that. It's funny, too, because one of the the points on the pro side was, hey, the sport needs all the celebrities it can get. We need to support the economy. We need more characters. We need more personalities. I mean, at one point, the WTA was making coaches available. So... You know, all the players that reach the semifinals, they're coaches, you know, Andrew Bettles and Berlin, I mean, sort of who, who, the four players who reached the semifinals, there would be press conferences for the four coaches. Um, and that seems to have gone by the wayside. I, I think you're right. I mean, some of it is, you know, there, there might be a language issue. Um, so, some coaches want celebrity more than others. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just weird because it just kind of, everybody has strong opinions. It kind of sort of, got snuck in. It's like a, it's like a rider in a bill. You know, you're like doing the defense bill and you stick in the pork. So laundromats get made, you know, lo, lo, you know, washing machines get made in Idaho. It sort of got snuck in and then everybody sort of shrugged. So yeah, I, I agree with your overall point. The whole thing is just kind of weird, but it has not, I, I mean, I, I don't think, uh, you know, Novak Djokovic can say he lost the Wimbledon final for a hundred reasons. I don't think sort of inferior, superior coaching would make his top 100 list. And so everybody's just, you know, it's, it's kind of typical tennis. Everybody's got a lot of opinions and a lot of outrage and then it actually happens and everybody kind of shrugs. Yeah, totally. And I can totally uh, imagine the conversation that was had with the powers that be. Should we, should we do a press release? No, then everybody's yeah, going to have an opinion. Exactly. Let's exactly. just, let's just do it. Not say anything. Nobody will notice, uh, which right. is again, to me, astonishing. Hey, maybe if they mic'd up the boxes, we could, it, it, we could have a conversation about, did Goron tell him the right thing? Did Juan Carlos Ferrero's advice change? Right. right? Maybe if we had that access, those conversations could happen. Obviously, you have language stuff. But let's let's move on. Um, so that's the first change in tennis of 2023 that I did want to talk about. Uh, let's talk about two-week Masters events. John, it doesn't seem like anybody 
really likes this. Um, nobody me. really likes. No, I think you're right. Nobody really likes this. Um, at some level, this is economics. At some level, this is. Listen, ladies, you want equal prize money, fine, but we're going to have to get some more sessions out of it. I mean, it's funny to me that some of these two-week events have had these very – so they still had scheduling issues, right? I mean, the, the Rome scheduling was a debacle. The Madrid scheduling was still problematic. Um, the players say, you know, listen, I, I lose early. I, I'll tell you, I, I was at the um, at the Ferrero Academy a few days before Roland Garros, and they, they were saying, well, you know, J.J. Wolf was just here. Like, J.J. Wolf was at the Ferrero Academy in the, in the hills of uh, in Alicante, Spain. Yeah, yeah, he lost early in one of these events, and he had, you know, 11 days to kill. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you're a, a top player, it is what it is. The prize money's gone up. But I think for a lot of players, it's a lot of dead time on the calendar. At the same time, you know, this is a typical tennis problem, right, where everybody – has an opinion and alternative solutions aren't going to make anyone happy. So we all like mixed events. We all like the players making as much money as possible. We all think on, you know, on, on equitable grounds, if not on capitalist grounds, equal prize money is a good thing. Well, the tournaments kind of need some sessions to play with and they need two weeks. And yeah, it's, it's not ideal on a number of levels. It's very strange that we're going to have, these run-of-the-bill events that are going to last just as long as majors. There are a lot of players who are going to have a lot of idle time on their hands, but I, you know, you, you can't, you, you can't have ever, you know, we, we can't have best of five matches and a one thirty start time and then get upset when we don't make the curfew. I mean, some, something's got to give here. So I don't, I don't think two week, uh, I don't think these events are necessarily ideal, but I get it from the tournament perspective and I'm not sure there's a better alternative if I'm paying all this prize money and I'm paying for this thousand level designation, I don't want competing events. You know, I, I don't want, uh, you know, it's easy to see a scenario in which the, the alternate final is, is sexier than mine. So I, I feel like it's, it's not ideal, but it's sort of uh, in the typical tennis way. It's, 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 you know, it's uh, we, we don't like democracy, but it, it's, it's the worst system except for all the others. Sure, sure. Uh, I If it's best for the bottom line, then then I guess that right. kind of overrules all. You know, we're, we're trying right. to, the, the tournament, everybody's trying to make money here, and that will obviously have its positive residual effects. And it does make sense why the two-week format and expanding the premium product, which I think is the exact words that Godenzi uses, uh, yeah, it, that that checks out. But I am worried about the players uh, because I know that just because they are off technically, that they might have an off day, does not mean that it's not still taxing to be away from home, to be at tournaments, and to not have matches to play. I don't think anybody wants that. I think what they want is to have their schedule full of tennis and if they're not playing then they can at least be home uh but that's why you see like the phoenix challenger the week after indian wells or i should say during the second week of indian wells it's like a 500 because the europeans aren't going to go back to to europe and they're they're looking for matches it's really interesting situation but i think to your point and this kind of goes on to what we were talking about with the coaching in three four years we will no longer be thinking about this 
Memories are short. Our, our outrage meters, uh, you know, again, I used there, the, the Wimbledon men's doubles matches were best of three this year. Did did anybody care? Did anybody recognize it? Did anybody raise a stink? I mean, we, we debate about these sort of, uh, you know, we, we debate these issues and it makes for good dis- lively discussion and then it happens and we move on to the next outrage. So, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think... Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this will. Maybe, maybe there'll be mixed doubles. Maybe this will encourage more players to play doubles. Maybe there'll be some mm-hmm. sort of creative solution. Maybe the USTA gets serious about setting up a real European base, so JJ Wolf and whoever I think it was Marcus Garot don't have to like you know finagle a few nights at an academy in Spain in Spain because they got nothing to do for ten days. Um, so maybe this will encourage some creative problem solving, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's it's not perfect, but I'm not sure anything is. Good idea. Are they are they have you offered that up? They should be paying paying you as a consultant. That's yeah. great. Uh, I'll also say I would like maybe some draw reform because I think the first couple days in this format fall a little bit flat. I was on site in Miami. I'll just say it didn't feel like a Masters 1000, and it's nothing against. You know, the players who are out there, but, you know, they're trying to fill Hard Rock Stadium and and they can't because they're not a top 32 seed. So that's another thing that that I'll add. Let's go to a topic that arguably I should have led with, but I wanted to ease into it. Uh, let's talk about the, the Saudi uh, potential for Saudi investment in tennis. And uh, you're the the best possible person uh, I could be talking to about this. I know you went to Saudi Arabia for a story you did for 60 Minutes. Let's start with with this question. Is it going to happen? I think before we get into the implications, we should start there. Oh, you mean the Saudi investment? The, uh, yeah, I well, think the question yeah. is just form. Yeah, absolutely. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Sports are a priority. There's already, you know, t- Taylor, you know, I was going to say Taylor Swift. Taylor Fritz won a million bucks in Riyadh the week I was there. Um, I think, I, I mean, I don't even know if it's official, but it's been an open secret for weeks and weeks and weeks that Jeddah is going to hold this mixed gen, you know, this next gen event after Davis cup. Um, it, it makes sense on a number of levels. It's un- unquestionably, there's going to be a Saudi presence in Senate. It's just a question of what is it going to look like? And I think they're two very different, uh, two very different paths. This could go down. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. 
You know, kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love because you're the long distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amic slash you know. All right, I got to ask you then. All right, well, so what, you know, one of them is, you know, I, th- I think everybody kind of learned their lesson from Liv. I think the Saudis did. I think the PGA did. I think other sports. This is like Steve Jobs, right? Like you make the mistake and then we'll come and figure out and do it better. And I think Godenzi said, listen, I, I love your, love the investment here. We're always happy for more capital, but we're not going to see a rival tour. We can't have you competing against us the way you did with the PGA. And I think there were, you know, I'm getting this secondhand, but good, well-sourced that there were assurances made. No, no, no. Um, We'd like to play a bigger role in tennis. I think Saudi would like a Masters 1000th event. And then all of a sudden, I think other parties sort of sniffed this out and said, wait a second, if the Saudis are throwing money around, why don't we, you know, it, it doesn't take much to, you know, there's not always a lot of stability in tennis. And imagine if the Saudis, say, for example, just hypothetically bailed out Tennis Australia in this United Cup, which is a real albatross and a money loser and an event that isn't um you know it wasn't set up to be what it is and it sort of came about as as a measure of defense if the saudis took over united cup and suddenly had a partnership with tennis australia and there is this looming players union and there could have been a ranking system though it was recently uh voted down i mean there, there's sort of elements there if you wanted to start not necessarily a live style competing tour but if you wanted to start some strategic partnerships, um, Saudi Arabia and this, you know, the, the sovereign wealth fund, the PIA, I mean, that could that could play a bigger role. So I think the question is sort of what is this going to look like? There's also, you know, keep in mind, too, there is there is a women's tennis tour that just parted with 20 percent of its equity um, for, for reasons unclear that are searching for a home for their year end event. Um, that is the principal source of revenue for the entire tour. Well, they're not going back to China for this year-end event. Where else could you put? Well, you could go back to Dallas, but we all know that had its issues and it's uh, you know, it, it did not draw particularly strong attendance. Um, you know, there's there's an oil-rich market. Um, it's actually closer to the sports European nerve center than Fort Worth, Texas is that might be happy to have it. So I, I think, anyway, the, the overarching point is Saudi wants to get into tennis. Tennis seems pretty clearly happy to partner with Saudi. And the question is, is this going to be like a title sponsor? Is this going to be, hey, listen, we'll try to get you some more tennis events. We'll help you with some exhibitions. We'll figure this out. You give us a, a lot of money. We'll be happy to put Saudi tourism on the net post. I mean, it'll look more like a traditional sponsorship, but it'll, it'll be Mercedes, except for a, a country's private wealth fund. Is it going to look like that? Or is it going to look like something a lot more integrated again? I think it's pretty obvious. Tennis Australia would be, um, as, as they tend to with these um, sort of entrepreneurial matters, Tennis Australia might take the lead. Is this going to be a new entity or is this going to be more of a traditional sponsorship model? And I think that's kind of the, um, you know, I think that's kind of the existential question right now. Okay, understood. Uh, a more granular question, just when it comes to the women, especially, uh, I read that until 2017, it might have been even 2018, that that women were not allowed to even attend sporting events in Saudi Arabia. So it's a culture that's that's suppressed uh, female participation in sp- in sports. Are they ready to to 
embrace the the WTA and and host uh, and and host an event like that? Um, you want you want a good one since we're live and I'm not uh, part. Yeah. Um, when I went to Saudi Arabia, it happened. It was a complete coincidence. It happened to coincide with this big uh, exhibition. That again, I mean, Taylor Fritz was there. Kyrgios, Medvedev, Rublev, Fitzpas, Stan Wawrinka. I mean, it was a big, big field. Again, the winner took a million dollars, and I was poking around. A- Andy Murray made it clear he did not want to go. He was not interested in taking his game to uh, to Riyadh. Mm-hmm. Um, who did I see on the grounds? One of the first people I saw when I got there was Judy Murray. Who was there for a clinic and to, you know, expose girls in Saudi Arabia to tennis? And I sort of thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Even within the same household, you have two very different positions. On the one hand, no, I don't want to, you know, I, this is this is money I don't want, and there I have sort of ethically I'm not comfortable going there. Versus, this is a way to be a change maker, and this is a way. I mean, Saudi Arabia, as, as you say, I mean, seven eight years ago it was a much different picture. This is a country that has come. I, mean, I don't think anyone would argue that um, it's not, not perfect. There's still some human rights concerns that uh, you know most people. This this is still a country with a long way to go. But I do think it's. Um, I, I think it's pretty much beyond. It. I mean, these changes are occurring. This is a country that's liberalizing. You know, there was Bruno Mars was there for a music festival in the desert where you know. Women without head coverings were going to the rave. Like, this is a country that's come a long way in a short time, socially. Doesn't mean it's not perhaps uh, cosmetic. Doesn't mean it's not masking some deeper human rights concerns. But I do think you can, it's, it's hard not to make the case this isn't sort of veering in a progressive direction. So I think, yeah, if you're Billie Jean King or Judy Murray, I think it's very easy to justify this by saying, listen, we're trying to be part of the solution. Um, Andy Murray is probably justified by saying this is not somewhere I'm comfortable playing and I don't want to be seen as uh, complicit. But even within the Murray household, you had two very different approaches to this issue. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I don't know if this was all, I'm not sure, you know, on the, the Eva Wimbledon, Billy Jean King sort of said, listen, I'm all about yeah. building bridges. And I think a lot of people were like, whoa, Billy Jean King. Um and I don't know if she was caught. I mean, I still am curious if she, if that had been a plant, if that had been a setup, if that was supporting Steve Simon, who's sort of, you know, um, perpetually embattled, or you know, if, if basically how how much thought went into that answer. Um, either way, it was it was big news. But I think yeah, for the WTA to say, listen, we want to be part of change, um, doesn't hurt that this is an oil rich country that's. I mean, you saw the Mbappe. I mean, this is just a completely different economic ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that doesn't hurt. But I, I think it's really going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's really going to be interesting to see how this is reconciled. It's interesting that this is coming off of the WTA 18 months ago. Didn't want to, you know, they took their business out of China because it didn't comport with our values. Um how you square that with going to an authoritarian country where only a few years ago women were allowed to drive is interesting. Um, but at the same time, it's a WT. It's, I'd like to see the WTA say, listen, we need to see, we need some, some KPIs, right? We need, we need some real markers of progress. And it's one thing to sort of have these flowery press conferences and talk about bridges and not walls. We need to see X. We need to see legislation passed that does X, Y, Z. We need to see, homosexuality decriminalized if in addition to taking the money in addition to the rhetoric there were actual um 
sort of explicit markers of progress, that to me would be the ultimate win-win-win. I don't know if the WTA has that inclination. I don't know if they have that kind of leverage. But instead of just sort of saying, we're going to give a bunch of tennis clinics and show girls you can achieve through sport, if there were some actual measurables of progress that were baked into any agreement, to me, that would be the real sweet spot for, for women's tennis. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. And I truly hope that there is something there when it comes to the approach, okay, we are going to kind of change it from the inside or we are going to to help them move forward. Uh, but at the same time, I do have a cynicism where, you know, part of me when it came to the live players, especially, I just wanted them to say, look, this isn't about changing golf or making anything better. This is just about the, the price tag was too high yeah. and I, I can't turn down that money. It's too much money and everything kind of, it just, the price was right. And, and I think there can be a lot of truth to that. I think some players were willing, some golfers were willing to go there and just be like, none of this stuff is really my concern. This money changes everything for me. Um, when I was, uh, when I was there again, this was before live golf blew up or before we had this, this merger or whatever we're, we're semantically calling it. This was, I guess, in December. And I talked to curious. He was absolutely as, as one would expect. He basically said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the money. I have no problem with it. No place is perfect. If they wanted to start a live tour, I'd sign up tomorrow. Um, other play, other players were cagier and again, other players declined this invitation. So I, I do think, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the money is the money is the money. I don't think we're going to see players just basically saying, yes, I'm for sale. And they were able to meet my threshold. Um, but I think sort of the, the way to play this, if I were Steve Simon is or, or whatever, if I were Gadenzi, if I were Nick Kyrgios is, you know, I come here with an open mind. Let's not be naive about the finances here and the fact that this is a, a different market that I'm used to playing in. But if we're serious about change, we need to see demonstrable change and not just press releases. And then we'll see if the other side is, is on board after yeah, that. Exactly. I, I think, yeah, I think, exactly. I think that's a great point. I want to weave something else in here, which is that the WTA and this kind of partially goes back to the two week masters. They've basically put out a roadmap for equal prize money at 500s and 1000s uh, combined events by 2027 all events by 2033, but it's an unconventional business arrangement to me because the WTA is saying we are going to match the ATP's prize money and they're separate economic entities. So do you see it in a, in a way as like the WTA is almost tied to whatever the ATP does because they need to be able to match that payroll. Uh, to me, that's a, I, I'm, I'm happy for it and I'm, Basically, my fingers are just crossed that like it's going to work out, and that economically, the this what I see as a very unconventional arrangement is going to be able to kind of be executed. We we talked before about policy sort of being snuck in. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know if there are more than twelve people that that care about this the way you and I do. But I I have asked people to explain this to me. You know, one of these explain it like I'm a fifth grader. Okay, and you get nowhere. I mean, the other the other component to this, and again, we're, this is way inside baseball, but this 150 million from the private equity firm, 
right? That they got in exchange for 20% equity stake. So the 150 million, I've heard 100 million of that is going to support equal prize money. So here you are, you're, you're basically leveraging 20% of your tour. It's getting, and two thirds of that is getting pumped back into the players in the form of prize money. So it's just, the whole thing is baffling. Again, it makes for a great headline. I think a lot of us sort of reflexively, viscerally, we all want fairness. It's really problematic when Victoria Azarenka is playing on one court for X dollars and Novak's on the next court for Y dollars. But the way this is being achieved is just baffling. And I think it's really sort of destructive for the WTA. You bring in private equity to boost the prize money at your own events. How does that build long-term growth? And then what you said, if you're, if you're pinning this, right? I mean, this is like a currency hedge. I mean, if, I mean, a currency peg. If all this is pegged to the ATP, what happens when suddenly they make a deal with Riyadh and the Saudi private investment fund, the ATP price? I mean, you know, Andrea Gadenzi does one deal and prize money could double tomorrow. What does that do to the WTA's commitment? I mean, it just, I just, you know, again, I, I think it's sort of a, a moral argument in the capitalist that we, we sure. all like equal prize money. We all want to see players paid equitably. Sometimes you get Alcaraz Nadal and the men say, this is crazy. How could the women want equal prize money? And sometimes you get Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka and the women say, this is why we deserve it. So just pay everyone the same. But the way the WTA is going about this is just absolutely baffling to me and between essentially paying for it yourself right i mean it's, it's basically you know my my son makes 10 and my daughter makes six and i slip her four dollars in extra allowance they, they may have the same net income but it doesn't mean they're being paid the same in the open market i mean it's just i just don't get you know i i, I support it and i don't get it at the same time and i think yeah. you're absolutely right though when, when when you peg this to the atp which is a separate entity it's really dangerous because the ATP could do one deal and their prize money could go up dramatically, you know, by dinner time. Yeah. That's, it, my, that's my TED talk. No, I, I, I'm with you. First of all, great nugget about the, where some of the private equity money is going. And yeah, it's not what you want to hear. You want to hear that it's going to be building up the organization for exactly. long-term growth so that they end up bringing in more, more revenue. Uh, and then the other part of this is, uh, yeah, I I almost wish I and I think you'd probably agree. What if the WTA just said we are going to be able to increase prize money by this percent over this period of time and now at least you know you're not shackling yourself exactly. to whatever the ATP does financially. Yeah. Especially when the ATP historically has shown I mean, you know, the ATP went to China when you didn't. The ATP I mean, especially when the track record here of cooperation is not great. I I don't think uh the, the ATP are going to make decisions, you know, ba based on whether this is going to help or hurt their their female counterparts. Um, I I don't get it. And I'd love for Steve Simon or whoever to just spell it out in plain terms, because I've tried and tried to get people and board members and agents. I mean, nobody can give you a straight answer on this. Let's change gears. Uh, we're... Yeah, Carlos Alcaraz, what will the champion? <laughs> uh, not, not yet, John. That's the prize right. at the end. Trust me. That's like kidding. the, right. yeah, at the end, go, we'll get go to Go wherever you want. Times. Go wherever you want. More negativity here. Recent PED suspensions. I don't even know how, how much <laughs> we can say on this. No, I, I'm sorry. I know. It's a gauntlet that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm bringing you through. Yeah. I, I, I know. Oh, you can handle it. Yeah. You're the only guy who can have you handle heard, it. Uh, have you heard about Zverev? Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Exactly. No, I don't know. PED suspensions. Um, yeah, do, I mean, they... We'll do go we ahead. just we'll need just, to pay... We'll, can I just say that? Do we... It, do we need to pay more attention to the TIU and PEDs in tennis because it, it, it hasn't seemed like something that has loomed large in the sport, to be completely honest, for the most part? But then suddenly, I mean, Simona Halep is one of the higher profile examples, probably the most high profile example since Sharapova. But now there's been two in the last two months, and it feels like it's just been a little bit more visible and and both of them in terms of Brooksby and Michael Emer are not that they failed tests right. but that they didn't report their whereabouts on three separate occasions so just curious if you have any perspective on this yeah I mean it, it's hard to report on um, I mean I don't think it's I think it's the, the ITIA the, you know, the tennis house is this anti-doping integrity unit um, but I think yeah right used to be the the TIU, and there's not a lot of transparency, nor honestly should there be. It's very hard to report on. Um, and we also have this phenomenon, sort of in keeping with, this is our theme for the uh, conversation. Everybody says we want a clean sport. Everybody says, you know, testing, tennis needs to amp up its protocols. And then whenever there is a positive test, not only does the player say that they've been victimized and they've been wrongfully accused and that this is a false positive, but then other players line up behind them. So um, it's, it's very, it's very tricky. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, just Simona Halep has been very adamant throughout that this is uh, that she's a victim of the system and that there are delays. On the other hand, um, the substance for which would, that's the one, one of the few things that is made public is, is the substance and the nature of the doping offense. Um, this is not, something you find in mama's pasta or hair loss medication or jet lag medication to use uh, three recent alibis. The fact that her biological passport was inconsistent is concerning. Um, I mean, I, I sort of, it's, it's very hard to report on because you don't, you don't yeah. get particularly far. And there's, I mean, as there should be, I mean, there should be a level of confidentiality. Um, I always thought these provisional suspensions were strange where you're basically lying to the public about why a player is absent. And yet, doing others is, I mean, if you did otherwise, you'd sort of have this adverse inference. Um, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's a little strange to me that a, a former number one player who beat Serena Williams to win her most recent major is either being completely railroaded by the system or has this credible doping violation hanging over her. And everybody's sort of like, I'll, you know, wait, we'll wait until uh, the tribunal speaks again. Um, and then the other, I mean, I, I would be a little, I, you know, I mean, again, it's, Tennis is a transient sport. You know, we've talked about this before with the, you, you, you don't know where you are necessarily. You're in hotel rooms. There's traffic. There are a hundred variables. This is not like we report to the clubhouse, right? The, the Dodgers are going to be in the locker room 90 minutes before game time, pretty reliably. You don't have that in tennis. Um, so you understand why, you know, I mean, uh, Ali's a Cornet, who I think is a, a very credible player who I've always found to be very professional and dignified. She had an issue with this as well. And her response was, you know, you, you try your best to make your whereabouts known. Um, sometimes that's that's not possible. Schedules change. You're on a flight. It's a very sort of, again, it's sort of this, this itinerant sport. At the same time, you understand it from the anti-doping perspective, which is, look, these are substances that leave the body. It is imperative that we be able to locate these players and do these tests without warning and knock on doors at 6 a.m., unpleasant as it is. And again, you, you sort of can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want a clean sport. And then you say, 
damn, here come the urine collectors waking me up for my nap. Um, something's got to give here. So I, I, mean, I do have, without knowing the particulars, I, I do sort of reflexively have sympathy for players who, you know, paperwork gets sloppy or plans change or they get caught in traffic or flight gets delayed. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't call Emer and uh, Jensen Brooksby dopers. They just didn't avail themselves. Um, I think the hollow is sort of a different bucket. And again, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I just, I don't know. Maybe she'll be exonerated and we'll have to completely reassess how we think about tennis doping or conversely, it's, it's not a good look when the number one player in your sport is getting popped for, I, I don't have that substance in front of me, but I did me look into it. This is not, this was not something that you sort of attribute to, you know, the, this labeled supplement. I mean, this was fairly significant. Yeah, which speaking of which, the tainted supplement, I mean, so many of these end up being that. And then, I don't know, Beatrice Haddad Maya, it happened, you know, a couple of years ago, and it doesn't seem like it it hangs on to her image. Uh, it, it feels like in tennis, you know, you're willing to brush it aside where maybe in MMA, you know, we both love UFC. I think it, it really hangs on to fighters who fail a drug test, generally speaking. You know, I, I would, uh, yeah, my agree? response to that is, no, I totally agree, but my response to that has always been, you know, in, in one, you're imp oh, yes. imposing physical harm on yes. someone versus you're hitting a, a yellow ball across a net with 5% more pace or recovering. From, um, no, I 100%. think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, chill, you go down the list of players and Tim Sarovich and Chilich, I mean, you sort of go down the list and I think tennis is pretty good about sort of, you know, you've, you've done your, you know, You've done your time, and we believe in second chances, and we believe in, in image rehabilitation. Um, but the, this, I mean, you know, even even you know, even Maria Sharapova, very very public, uh, very public case. I, I don't think that necessarily hangs over her. Uh, it's part of the story, but I don't think it's overtaken mm -hmm. her accomplishments. I, I just think the Hollop, it's it's very tricky because it's it's hard to get information, and you don't want. You know, you, you don't want to be an apologist, but you also don't want duplicross either. So I think everybody's sort of taking a, a wait and see approach, which is probably responsible. But it also it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit unnerving that a former number one player has this doping violation hanging over her one, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And I also have a speaking of the, the UFC kind of comparison, I, I also have a natural a natural suspicion, I would say, where, you know, players don't get to collectively bargain like they do in the other sports for what the terms of right. the doping controls are going to be. For example, in the NBA, the players said, you know, marijuana is being legalized in the United States in a lot of states. And we think, you know, we would like to be free to exercise that legal right. And they actually had power to make a change in the policy when it comes to NBA drug testing. Tennis players have no such power. So when it comes to a, a Brooksby situation or an Emer situation, I, I do think that's something that that should be brought into play, which is that the players have just no seat at the table when it comes to something like this. Yeah, I would, um, I, you know, just to be clear, no, you're absolutely right. It was, you know, this, this was collectively bargained, right? Yeah. So presumably the players gave up something or there was a meeting of the mind. Um, you don't have that in tennis. I mean, this, this, I mean, PTPA in, in as much as we know what it is, this would be a great place for the PTPA to say, we want to collectively 
bargain. You know, we, we want a drug policy that we have some input on. Um, that hasn't happened. So you're right. I mean, may, maybe in, instead of the policy, so, you know, maybe this, this thing about missing whereabouts, maybe that's something where we have some wiggle room. Um, but yeah, in, in the absence of a union, that doesn't happen. The players are essentially told, Here, here's the policy. If we, if we call you up three times, you don't open your, you know, you, you don't open your email or whatever it is, you are facing suspension. And there also, there isn't the grievance procedure either. I mean, I don't know if you're Jensen Brooksby, where, where do you go to fight that? Hire a private attorney, I suppose, but it's not as though you, you go running to the, you know, if this were a collective bargaining sport, if this were, this were basketball or baseball or football, it's not just the policy, but the union helps you then mount your defense. I don't know what happens when you are a tennis player and you're, you're Jensen Brooksby and you get that dreaded letter. I'm not sure, sh- short of hiring counsel at your own expense, I don't, I don't know where you go with that. Yeah, I think I believe you're on somewhat of an island similar to how you compete in your sport by yourself. Exactly. Uh, okay. I'm Anything open- else? Domestic violence? We no, our, we're, you, you know, know I, I have some other topics, John, but but it, it has uh, I have kept you uh, for a while. And, you know, you've you've soldiered through these difficult topics. Uh, here's a fun one between the lines. If, uh, if you're talking to someone who's trying to get excited about the next two months in tennis leading into the U.S. Open, or I can just ask you, John, what are you excited about? What am I excited about? Um, I, you know, I mean, we, we had this tremendous final. You know, it was one of the best sporting events, never mind tennis matches I've ever seen, the men's final. But mm-hmm. before that, there are a lot of intriguing stories. And as someone, you know, I, I think one of my big sort of talking points is we're we miss Serena Williams, but you know what? You go to these tournaments and you don't hear her name that much. We miss Ash Barty. We miss Naomi Osaka. We miss, obviously, Federer and, and who knows what's going on with Rafa. But you know what? There, there's still spellbinding matchups and there's still great matches and there's controversy and there, you know, there are underhand serves at, at eight all in a match tiebreak and... You know what? I mean, I, I thought Wimbledon in a weird way, sort of this Wimbledon disgorged more stories from Chris Eubanks to Mira Andreva, um, I, Jesse Pico. I mean, there were there were so many storylines, good and bad, and what's the status of X that came out of this tournament. Um, and some of this is, you know, I, I think we have this sort of thing in tennis. How much of this is flash in the pan stuff, right? How much of this is Raducanu or you know, even Ostapenko? How much of this is lightning in a bottle? And how much of this is, boy, we are now seeing Mar- Marquette Vondrosova is going to go on a four major bender. Um, so some of this is just sort of following progress. Is, is Chris Eubanks going to be able to back up that tremendous run he had? Um, you know, what, what is, what's the impact on Medvedev of playing five good matches and then getting schooled by the 20-year-old? Um, a lot of these storylines are sort of worth – following and then the big one obviously you you're coming to the fourth major of the year and Novak's won two of the last four majors and the kid from Spain has won two of the last four majors and they're one and two in the rankings and you really have this sort of generational wrestling match and Novak won the round in Paris fairly dramatically um not only winning the match but sort of imposing himself physically and then five weeks later it's a much different result um tennis is going to be fine there's you know, there's a lot of flux. There's a lot of craziness. There are a lot of players who came out with their stock higher after Wimbledon and we'll see how they 
fare, you know, here in the, this part of the world. A lot of a uh, lot of fantastic nuggets of gold in there that that we can uh, cling on to and and look forward to. Um, I'll add that the the three players who have been so great on the WTA side are all under 25 years old. Sabalenka is 25 years old. And also, man, after that Wimbledon, it's going to be fascinating to see just big picture. Is that the one that got away from Ons, or is it going to be part of the greater journey that leads to her, you know, conquering those demons and and finally kind of getting to the promised land after losing her first three major finals? That's going to be really interesting to watch. John, you have a, a full year to recover from from uh, yeah. from this obstacle course, <laughs> and uh, new issues will emerge. And yeah. I, I I hope I we will talk before then. But you know, again, thank you for coming on Monday Match Analysis and mm. navigating through these issues because you are truly the person who I think covers these kinds of things better than anybody in our sport, and we're really lucky to have you doing that. It's very kind of you. We will uh, we, can, we can revisit this in a year and see how uh, where where our unforced errors came. But uh, no, I mean honestly, I think we, we love the tennis. You're you know, you have a, a passion that's second to none. We, we love, but there's some really existential fundamental issues. I'm glad you, you touched on them. I mean, this, this sort of, this isn't just some idle storyline to follow. I mean, I think a lot is going to happen in the sport potentially for the better. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily doom and gloom, but it's very easy to sort of get, you know, it's, it's very sad. You know, we, we all love following Tsitsipas and, Paula Bedosa, and we all love what Nick Curios doing next, but I think it's important to sort of take a step back and sort of figure out where macro this sport is going, even if it's not always as, as, as fun and light and lively as talking about what crazy social media posts Nick Curios issued. So thank you. A long way of saying thank you for doing this. Pleasure. Thank you, John. Of course. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. 
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.